Welcome to the Coaches Club Podcast, powered by Transform Sport, where we believe great coaches transform lives, athletes deserve great coaches, and coaches deserve great training. I'm your host, Luke Gromer, and every week we're bringing you conversations with coaches and leaders in sport that will help you grow as an effective teacher and transformational leader so that you and your team can reach your potential. Coaches, I'm excited to welcome Cody Royal to the podcast. Cody is the head coach of AFL Team Canada, the men's national team for Australian rules football. He is a standout voice on how teams create sustained success. His debut book, Where Others Won't, is a go-to guide for professional sports teams around the world, and his podcast of the same name was nominated for a podcast award in 2019. Cody has just released his second book, The Tough Stuff, which explores the emotional toll taken on head coaches in elite sport. In our conversation today, we discuss Cody's new book, what coaches are getting wrong in their leadership, the importance of cohesion between the coaching staff, and how coaches can stop resulting and help players do the same. I'm confident this conversation will help you get better at teaching and leading. Enjoy the episode. Awesome. Well, Cody, I appreciate you joining me and and being willing to chat. Um, I would just love to start off and hear a little bit about two things. One, uh, why you coach, and then two, just kind of a brief coaching uh, bio for you. Why I coach is an easy one for me. It is what reignited my passion for my sport, which was Australian rules football. So for a lot of American people, they might not be as familiar with the AFL or Australian football, but uh, if you're familiar with college football or the NFL, most of the punters come from my sport. So um, the biggest sport in Australia, you know, billion dollar TV rights alone, you know, only played professionally in one country. Um, the Melbourne cricket ground, the, the kind of hallowed turf holds just over a hundred thousand people. So it's about the size of the big house in Michigan. Um, so I was, uh, a, a pretty good junior player. I played for at state level in under 15s, under 16s and under 18s, but then didn't get drafted to play professionally and kind of fell out of love with the game through that process. And it was coaching. I got into coaching at 23 that really reignited my passion. So the ability to pass on kind of my knowledge and experience and shape others' experience with the sport that I love has been a blessing in disguise for me and so even at uh, what am i now 36 so i've been doing this for about 13 years so i'm a pretty experienced young coach um so that's that's why i coach to be able to shape the experiences that others have with the game that i love and yeah so my i mean my coaching bio i now coach canada's national men's team we have a national men's and women's program Our women are actually or were the world champions previously. Mm -hmm. Um, Our men are in the top five in the world. And, um, yeah, I mean, that's really just because I am in Toronto, Canada, where it's our game. (laughs) Uh, He's played a little bit, but not a whole heap. Um, But the original goal was to try to coach professionally in Australia. But uh, we may get there one day but I'm happy with the journey that I'm on at the moment coaching up here in, I mean, downtown Toronto. That's awesome. I love it. I, I think it's fascinating to hear other people's journeys of, of where they've gotten to um, in the coaching world. Um, I, I just finished reading your new book, the tough stuff a few days ago, and I really enjoyed it. We're going to talk about it some more, but I would love to know before we start talking about what's in the book and, and we'll, maybe we will talk about some of it now, but what inspired you to write this book and, or was there a specific moment where you knew, okay, I've got to write this book. It's a good question, Luke. Yeah. The, uh, I mean, it's very clear. Unfortunately, it's, it's not a great story, but, um, about this time last year, we lost a player. Um, so he, he passed away, he died by suicide. And so uh, going through that, you know, with a team of, we, we have about 50 young men on our team. And so going through that process with them really made me reflect and think about 
the tough stuff of being a head coach and specifically I'm not talking about coaching here. I'm talking about head coaching when you're the one and you're the one that spotlights on, it comes with responsibilities that even some of the most tenured assistant coaches don't fully understand. You know, you kind of think about it like from a business perspective, there's just things that the CEO understands that the CFO doesn't quite understand and the COO doesn't quite understand they're they're close like they're at the same boardroom table but there's just this little shift and there's something about being a head coach which has the same dynamic and so my experience of going through that and and working with our guys through a obviously very traumatic like the most traumatic kind of experience that you can probably go through uh, was one catalyst and then a month later COVID hit and I started calling up friends that are coaches, you know, at the elite levels of professional sport and just asking how they were doing. And there were some realizations there that, you know, they weren't necessarily doing the best either. And when I went to look for resources to help both myself and the people that I'm friends with, I wasn't able to find anything, at least in book form, or if it was, it, it didn't address this type of stuff directly it was sprinkled in there, right? It was sprinkled in an autobiography. It's, you know, um, there, there might be something in a, a little bit of a chapter in an autobiography, but again, that's at the end of their career generally is when they're, um, when they're produced. And even then it's, you know, only serial winners get to write an autobiography. So it's still a very biased view of how it all works. And even then this, when it's serial winners, the stories that, the publishing house wants to tell are about winning trophies. You don't want to hear Pat Summit talk about how hard it is to be a head coach. You don't want to hear Bill Belichick talk about how hard it is. You want to hear about the Super Bowls and and that kind of stuff. So uh, there was just nothing out there. And so those two things combined, they happened within a month of each other. You know, the uh, the passing of one of our players and COVID starting really became the two things where I said I'm the person that needs to write this book because it needs to come from another head coach not a journalist not a psychologist not a it's got to come from someone who's felt it and actually knows what's going on wow yeah that's a lot even just listening to you recount that that story is is really powerful and props to you for for taking everything that you must have been dealing with and feeling in that in that season and, and using it to create something that's serving other people. So I, I admire that a lot. One of my favorite things that you talk about uh, is what you call the weight. And you do this kind of throughout the book. You, you name things into existence. I'm a big fan of that. Um, like you, you created your own, you know, vernacular almost in this book to talk about certain things. Would you just define what that is and kind of talk about where it comes from for most coaches? Mm. Yeah, the weight is the cumulative stress and anxiety that comes from caring. Um, and and I, I want to be, you know, really kind of clear here. We think about the stresses and pressures that are on particularly head coaches in the wrong way. When we talk about it in the media, they generally say like it's the weight of expectation, but I've never met a coach whose expectations of themselves doesn't outweigh others' expectations. And so it's not really that. It's the weight of caring about, in my instance, 50 players plus everyone that's in their lives. So significant others, parents, kids. Uh, so there's, you know, a couple of hundred people straight away. And so I have to really care about those people. Then my staff you know, all my assistant coaches, all the people that are in our realm, all of a sudden you've really got, yeah, a couple of hundred people that you really need to give a damn about. And that creates that expectation and that, that weight. And what's really interesting about it is the second you say the word, the weight to people is they know exactly what you're talking about in this world. And they can actually describe the physical nature of it. So caring about someone 
isn't something that you traditionally associate with a physiological response, but, you know, we call it the weight on your shoulders or we describe the tightening of your chest when something goes wrong or it, it, you can actually have a visceral reaction to just the term, the weight. And it comes about through caring about other people. Yeah. I like that a lot. And I, again, I'll preface this with I'm not a head coach. I'm an assistant for a ninth grade boys basketball team. So I do not understand all of those pressures. And I will say though, that in a limited capacity, I, I have experienced what you're describing just with the kids that I assist with in our team being ninth graders and in times where maybe they'll make a, a poor decision, right? Maybe outside of, outside of practice or outside of our game, maybe it's in the classroom, maybe it's in life. Like there is that, yeah, the, the a physical, physical response that I, I can often feel that, that comes from that place of care. And, and to be honest, I think sometimes can come from a place of insecurity of like, oh man, what, you know, what is this reflecting on me as their coach? And am I not doing a good enough job? Like in, in some ways, am I responsible for what's going on here? And, and there's all these narratives that can just run wild in coaches' heads. But I think that you're exactly right. They come from this deep place of, of care and, and wanting good for the, the athletes that they coach. Um, what, uh, what have you found are, are the ways that coaches can, uh, lift the proverbial weight or, or kind of remedy that, that issue? This is a hard one. And this is really one of the reasons that I wanted to write the book was because I wanted to firstly validate a lot of these feelings and say, they're okay. And also just point to them for other people and say, like, this is what the real human experience is. And, you know, the second half of the book is really about how to try to lift the weight. And there's a whole range of different ways. There's, you know, the introspection and, and um, you know, really kind of digging into yourself. And then there's also structural things, infrastructure that we can put around coaches to help them. So, uh, we'd need a full hour just to talk about how they can help themselves, but I'll, I'll summarize it quickly in saying um, there's, yeah, there is two things. There's you as the leader, as the teacher, as the coach, as the parent, and really reflecting on who you are, uh, how you communicate, how you show up, like your behavior. And then there's kind of auditing everything that's going on around you. And that's what, I'm, that's what I mean by infrastructure. So what support avenues do you have when you do have a problem? Uh, like what, what are the behaviours that you're doing just because as an assistant coach for a ninth grade basketball team, you know, the game comes with certain situations that, that are expected of you, right? This is how a, an assistant coach acts in basketball. And this is what they do. And this is the, you know, it's almost dictated to like, this is how coach blows the whistle, <laughs> right? And when you dig down, a lot of those things don't actually matter and they don't make the, um, the experience better either for the coach or the players. And so we can really start to audit all of those behaviors and structures and infrastructure around us as well. So they're the two things that I've focused on for most of the book. And that's because I think they're the two avenues that we can take to yeah. lift the weight. Yeah, that's really good. Kind of to follow up on, on part of that, one of the things that I think a lot of coaches experience is the difficulty of working with other coaches on their same staff. Um, that often it's not a very harmonious environment or one that is really supporting each other as coaches. So I would just love to know from your experience, from your perspective, uh, like how can coaching staffs better support one another and, and collaborate together? Yeah, this is something that has become really close to my heart and I think is a huge missed opportunity is all of the time and energy and thought and money that's invested in culture and cohesion and connection amongst the playing group 
Uh, one that it's it's justified. That's a a bit of a shortcut to sustained success. And so I understand why a lot of environments are investing in that. But the missed opportunity is that same idea amongst the coaching staff uh, because a couple of reasons. I don't think you win in any level of sport with a dysfunctional staff. And two is I think we underestimate how much the staff or the coach creates themselves in the team. And those two things are linked. So if you've got a dysfunctional staff, a staff that don't get along, that don't agree, that you know the junior assistant coach thinks they should be the, the head coach and they think their tactical ideas are better than, than the head coach and all the ways that there can be that lack of harmony amongst the coaching group. One, it obviously hurts the effectiveness of the coaching group. But two, uh, we know from countless studies of behavior that people become who they're around and they become who they observe the most and for basketball teams for Aussie rules teams who they're observing the most are the coaches and they pick up on the smallest things and you know this better than most as a teacher and we hear countless stories of parents is the things even the things that you don't think that they pick up on people pick up on and you don't have to look much further than a, a parent who accidentally cusses in front of their two-year-old and all of a sudden they've got a, a swear word coming out of their two or three-year-old's mouth every, every day. Um, if you can imagine that, it's the same, exactly the same within sports teams. And so if you don't have that, that cohesion amongst the coaching group, you, you can't really expect it of the team. So I think there's a huge missed opportunity to really work on those behaviours and put some of the same thought and exercises um, in place for the staff themselves. Yeah, two things. One, I have a son who's almost two and I have to watch what I say around him very closely now because he is repeating everything. <laughs> You're so right. Uh, my <laughs> wife and I discovered that I say, oh my goodness, a lot around him. And so he started to repeat that in last week and it's hilarious and, and really cute. So, um, <laughs> and then um, I, the, other, the other thing I would just throw in just as a, a thought to add on to that is I think that, like you said, we, we understand how important it is to create this culture with our players, but we neglect to do it within the staff and I'm a big fan of Daniel Coyle's work and the culture code. And I think it's so phenomenal. And um, I mean, one of the essential layers of a great culture is that you share vulnerability together. And I think that, that that is often missing with coaching staffs is there's not, there's not a space created where they can be vulnerable and honest with each other to really see each other and then be able to actually come together Um yeah, so I totally agree with with you on that. Kind of shifting a little bit, uh, talking about leadership and how that plays out for coaches. I would just love to know what comes to your mind when you think about um, the things that coaches most often get wrong when it comes to leadership. Where do I start? anywhere <laughs> <laughs> yeah there's a lot um i mean one is just the activities and the impact of those activities uh, i just got off a call with uh, 25 or 30 coaches coach educators you know olympic committees pro teams and this is where we ended up talking is again the game imposes certain things on you so you know a coach in basketball acts like this or in the NFL, it's you have to be at the facility until 3 a.m. watching tape or we can't win, right? There's like, there's this idea and it's really imposed on you and it's hard to break from the game uh, because that's what's deemed as driving the success of the team. And unfortunately, it takes someone winning with a different model or a different behavior set to set off that innovation chain. So one of the things that I was thinking of is thank God Steve Kerr won 
because we we wouldn't have his empathetic way of or Pete and Pete Carroll if those two if if they had have lost even the finals right or the Super Bowls we wouldn't have those bastions to hold up and say look this is possible using this model um, so yeah I think one is just that that behavior set and and really thinking through whether the behaviors you're exhibiting are actually driving the success or whether it's potentially something else. I posit that watching film at 3 a.m., one, is a complete waste of time, uh, is terrible behaviour to exhibit in front of players who you've given a curfew to. So why why do you get to stay up watching film but I can't play video games? Um, and then three is your like that kind of behaviour, actually driving uh, a culture of fatigue. Because if the head coach won't go home, the assistants won't go home, means the receptionist can't go home, all these, you know, goes down the chain, right? And so that's one, is your own behavior. Uh, and then the other one that I'd say, and again, I could go on for hours about this, but uh, communication. And we think communication in a coaching sense is a big rousing speech. And it's really not. Um, you know, we... I think Doc Rivers was the one that pointed out that that's for the movies and it's, isn't it great in the movies, you know, when on any given Sunday and Al Pacino's up there talking and the inches speech kind of became famous and, and there's a million of them. There's um, you know, the miracle on ice and there's, you know, coach Carter and you can walk down the street and stop someone. And most people know a big coaching speech from a movie but it's not actually how it works. (laughs) And worse than that is it's not actually communication. Um, It's not effective communication. It's you passing on emotion, which 90 seconds into the game is then gone. And you haven't really educated them on how to solve the problem of the game themselves. That's what coaching is. And so, you know, I think we really need to consider how we think about communication and if you go down that path and one of the things that i position in the book is that we need to factor in behavior as its own way of communicating because it is and self-talk as well so we don't tend to traditionally think about self-talk or your inner voice as communication but if if you don't think about behavior and you don't think about your inner voice they're the two things that actually communicate the most. Um, your behavior communicates what you're thinking and your inner voice uh, is constantly going. You, you speak thousands of words to yourself on a daily basis. So if that's not communication, I don't know what is. And so if we start to bundle those in, we get a little bit more of a 360 view of what of communication and we can actually work on the right skills rather than working on copying what Al Pacino said in any given Sunday. Yeah, that's, that's really good. Two things in response to that one, my undergraduate degree is in special education. And so I studied behavior really extensively in college. And one of the things that, that was made very clear to me from the start of my classes was behavior is a form of communication. Every behavior is telling you something. And so Yes, to echo everything you said, it, it is so true, and I think it's a it's a really important shift for coaches to make, um, their to examine their own behavior and then also to be aware of their players' behavior and what that's communicating. And then the the second thing that I would say is uh, I I just finished reading Doug Lamov's new book, The Coach's Guide to Teaching, and that that book thoroughly challenged me about my communication. And he has a, a line in there um, where he essentially says a, a focused coach equals a focused player, a distracted coach equals a distracted player. And I think that oftentimes in coaching, there is so much noise that coaches put out there. And by noise, I mean so much communication that is not clear to players. Coaches know what they're saying. They know what they're trying to say, but players have no idea what coaches are trying to communicate. There's just this huge gap in communication. And so I've been very personally challenged in my own coaching to try to 
use less words in my communication, but more focused words and, and to only use words that I know that myself and my players are clear on together. Cause I think there's just a, such a huge breakdown when we don't do that. Yeah. Well, you come from the perfect sport for, for it, right. To analyze because you've got timeouts. So you think about a timeout, what happens in a timeout? The coach speaks the whole time, right? Literally you can watch it even at top levels where the buzzer goes to go back out and the coach is still talking and drawing up. And that's, that's just packing. That's the coach saying, if I just, pack words in for 60 seconds what i get to do is then say i told them that i told them that was going to happen right like so you just you just blurt stuff out and the hope that someone takes something in that's one you know better than this that's not education and then two is there's way too much in there for anyone to digest any of the information and take clear instruction on what you need them to fix uh, I was talking to, you know, I write about this a little bit in the book as well. You know, Jay Triano, who coached the Raptors and the Suns, you know, I sat with him when he was in town and we talked about, even as players, we like, how many messages do we remember like after half time? And you kind of have this idea that it's three, but I don't even think three is right. I think it's probably two. I think the third one, as when you're a player, you're like, what was the third one? Right, because there's a game going on around you. You're like, what? But you're trying to think. Well, what's going on in the game? I think you remember one clearly. You remember two kind of clearly, and the third one, you're always kind of be like, what was the third thing that the coach said to me? And so even the notion of we just picked three randomly, right? I don't think there was really a study behind people can retain three messages. I think we just kind of picked three because it sounds good. So if you start to think about that if a player on your team only retains two bits of information once they're back in the game, you better choose wisely what those two are. Yeah. Yeah. So true. Uh, to talk a little bit more about that, I would love to know, know from you. Uh, so, so to kind of like put you in that situation of you're at halftime with your team and Things haven't gone the way you want it to in the first half. How much, how, first, how much time are you actually spending with you talking or dictating to the players? And then the second part would be are, are you using any language at halftime that you haven't you taught them before that moment? I've spent a lot of time thinking about this, iterating on this. Luckily, I've spent quite a few years with my team. I've been with them since 2012. And so we get to operate a little bit differently in this, this model. So my players firmly understand how I coach and what we're trying to achieve, I hope. And quarter time, half time, three quarter time are really important in that model. So what I would say would be generally we have two or three things that we think are going to win us each game. And so we, they're clearly identified before the game. If we can execute these two or three things for everything else that could possibly happen, which is a lot in a game of Aussie rules, we're betting that if we win these three battles, we win the game. So that's important in the whole context of how you address quarter time, half time, three quarter time. But what we do is we spend way more time, the players communicating amongst themselves. So a debrief is the first action. So they break into their, their small groups. They have defenders, midfielders, attackers. They talk amongst themselves about what happened for a couple of minutes and then it becomes into a, a larger group. And then essentially we spend a couple of minutes, them debriefing me on what happened. And so 
that differs from the way it is a lot of the time where the coach is the one diagnosing everything that's going on. But that's the wrong way to do it because the players are the ones playing the game. So they know and sometimes what they feel is way more important than what you're seeing from walking along the boundary line or up in the stands or wherever the coach uh, is watching from. And the reason that's important is because you can actually create uh, negativity that doesn't need to be there. So an example might be, I might think that the team are fast, the opposition are fast. And so that might be my diagnosis. Geez, they're faster than us. What that does for a player is it makes them think that the opposition are fast, but that might not be the actual experience, the lived experience out on the field. They might think that we're getting beaten tactically or something else. So that's the reason I want their feedback first. Where, where are we going on the three things that we think we're going to win on? You, and you tell me what your human experience out on the field is. And then I'm going to educate you on what we're seeing from the boundary line. So it becomes a, a collaborative um, quarter time, half time, three quarter time for us to solve the problem together rather than just a pure diagnosis and word vomit and, you know, accidental uh, kind of negative psychology that a coach is kind of traditionally expected to, um, to give at any sort of interval within the game. Uh, and I think that that's a, a key thing because it goes missing a lot is the coach never asks what the human experience on the, on the, the pitch or the court or the, the field is. And that's the most important thing, not what the coach is seeing, what the players are seeing and feeling. Um, and so that's our process. Again, it takes time. Uh, players aren't usually geared towards thinking about the game in real time like a coach. Uh, and then having to tell others about it. So we train for that. Yeah. I like that a lot. I, I think it's really powerful just to let them have a voice in the process. Kind of shifting a little bit. One of uh, one of my favorite quotes from your book was in chapter four. Uh, you said, rather than asking whether every player is coachable, perhaps we should ask whether we have the strength of identity to be able to coach different types of players. That really resonated with me for, for really one main reason. I think that it's really easy for coaches to slap labels on players. This kid's really coachable. This kid's just uncoachable. Will you tell me your thoughts on that and how you think that plays out in a team dynamic and with player development? Yeah, I'm so passionate about this one. It, it's such a rubbish term to say a player is uncoachable. That then places all the blame on the player. And really what it means is you're making me uncomfortable and I like you're not displaying behavior uniformity. And so I'm not even going to bother with you. And I think that's, that is not coaching to me. That's not what we're there to do. We are there to figure out how to unlock the potential and the talent that exists within that human being. And so that's why I wrote it that way is because I think the problem is actually us. So do we have the guts to examine our own behaviors, our own teaching ability, our own coaching ability, our own leadership and say, I might need to treat this human being slightly differently. And the way that you do that, as you well know, Luke, is you have to go and actually figure out how, who that human being is. And that also takes some empathy or you need to be able to empathize uh, and it takes questioning and it takes a process. But then you start to realize, actually, they're not late because they're a bad human being. They're late because uh, it's a single mother environment and the mother is working their third job to put food on the table and the kid has to catch the bus and the bus didn't arrive. And so they actually walked to training or whatever the scenario is, right? And so we really need to examine the idea of coachability. And I, I position it as you need coach 
pause, ability. The ability to coach means that you can take different human beings and still be able to optimize and utilize their skills without relying on behavior uniformity. You need to act like this. Yeah, I have experienced that. And the word that was in my mind and you said it was empathy. It, it takes a high level of empathy for, for coaches to be willing to seek to understand the root of whatever behavior that they deem as being uncoachable, right? I think that that's so powerful. I think my follow-up question to that and what I would anticipate a lot of coaches might push back on is how do you balance that empathy and understanding for a athlete's unique situation with the uniform standards that you have for your team and the behaviors that you expect from everyone? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, you said the word there, standards. So those two can go hand in hand. You can be empathetic and have high standards. And what, what we do a really bad job of, again, this comes back to understanding human beings. And just on that even, so empathy is actually the wrong word, right? So that's impossible. You can't have empathy. So the definition is to actually be in someone else's shoes. So you can't do that. What you can do to your, you actually said it the right way, is the process of empathizing. So you can seek to understand someone's scenario. You can never actually stand in their shoes. And it's in that seeking where the real discoveries are. And so I think even that word is starting to uh, intimidate people because it feels like a huge leap to have to arrive in someone else's shoes. But it's the process that we're looking for. And so um, in the process of empathizing, is you start to understand that people don't have the same norms. And this is becoming more and more the case as we become a, glo a globalized world where even their understanding of power dynamics, so their understanding of coaching might be completely different because of how they're socialized into the world. So not everyone has the same dynamics with taking instruction. Not everyone has the same dynamics with authority figures. They might actually hate authority figures because of a previous relationship with authority figures that uh, didn't go well. Uh, so in that process of empathizing with them and their journey and learning about them, you start to uncover these things. And that's where the real coaching is, is, okay, this player might not be able to understand the way that I've positioned it, but if I can move the needle a little bit and then come to them and say, can we still hit these standards because our team needs you to be this great player that we know you can be. You can actually meet them where they are rather than just imposing blanket standards on them. Um, because really that's not what culture is. Culture is fluid, right? It's always changing. It's always going up and down. It's not one thing. And so, yeah, they can still meet those cultural norms, but still be themselves. Yeah, that's really powerful. And yeah, I love the way you put that. And even just to have that conversation with them of, hey, can, can, can you still be you and meet these standards that our team needs you to meet? And even shifting away from me as the coach, I'm enforcing these on you, but this is what our team needs from you for you to be at your best and for us to be at our best. I think that's really, really powerful. Uh, a couple more questions. One, you talk about resulting in your book. And I think that this is, this is one of the cardinal sins for coaches. Like it, it, in, in my experience, it's way up there on the list of things we get really wrong. Will you talk about what resulting is? and how coaches can shift their own mindsets and the minds, mindsets of their players away from resulting. Yeah, I first heard about this from Annie Duke, the poker player and author. And she uses it in the circumstance of looking at Pete Carroll's decision in the Super Bowl to pass instead of give the ball to Marshawn Lynch. So the idea of resulting is that you equate the outcome of a decision with whether it's a good or bad decision. But 
again, when you start to look at that mathematically, that those two can never take place, right? You have to make a decision based on the information that you have. So it could be a good decision that goes bad, um, but you, you can't just sit there and go, well, that went bad, so it was a bad decision. So the Super Bowl one is a perfect example because technically it was probably the best decision statistically it certainly was because they needed to stop the clock at some point um and but everyone thinks it's the worst decision of all time like that's what all the headlines were and you're exactly right in that this is rife in coaching in general where just because something didn't work out from a results perspective we think that it was bad decision making um but just like we would tell our players to focus on the process rather than the outcome, we also need to take our own advice on that front and say, did we make the right decision in the game or in training or um, in the process itself rather than focusing on what the outcome was? That's going to be a huge change for a lot of coaches because we want to focus on wins and outcomes and measurable things. But you know, again, Annie puts it perfectly, is that the magic is actually in the process itself. Make the right decisions in there and keep making enough of them over time and that's actually how you get ahead, not, you know, being stymied by win, loss, statistical category, you know, just measuring outcomes. Yeah, I love that. And I'll just share a, a really quick story about how powerful I've seen it be for athletes when coaches stop resulting and they start focusing on the process and the decision instead of the outcome. So with the ninth grade team that I assist with, we gave them uh, what we call a shot selection scale. So a, a way to rate the quality of the shot that we take when it leaves their hands. So regardless of whether it goes in or not, we're rating a shot from a one to 10 scale, but we just use three, five, seven, and nine. Um, and we wanted to shoot sevens or nines every time. And actually I stole this from PGC basketball, another group that they're really good with language and, and focusing on the, the process. But so we gave this to our players of like, Hey, every time down the court, we're trying to shoot a seven or a nine. And it's a good shot when it leaves your hands, regardless of whether it goes in or not. If you shoot a seven or a nine, we will never be mad at you. We will never take you off of the floor for missing a seven or a nine. And the mindset shift for players was noticeable immediately. And even to do things in practice where we were rewarding them for just shooting a seven or a nine, regardless of whether it went in or not. It was like, okay, you shot a seven, your team gets these points for it, right? Um, at the, at the end of our basketball season that just recently ended, um, some of the feedback that we got from players was that they loved – when we told them it was a good shot, even if it didn't go in, um, yeah. just for them to actually see, like you said, the coaches embrace that too of like, we have no control what happens after it leaves your hands, but let's focus on the process of the shot we want to take and then live with the result and, and trust that if we take enough of those good ones over time, it'll usually turn out in our favor. Yeah, I, I have to utilize this as well because my game is foreign to the people that I coach it to. So my game's only played professionally in Australia. Most of my guys, by the time they arrive with me, they've either played NCAA or U sports up here in Canada, sport, basketball, rugby, soccer. And so I'm actually teaching them a new game and a lot of new skills, even the skill of kicking from hand to foot whilst running is quite new for them. And so what becomes crippling is that resulting, those outcomes. And so, you know, we have an idea that we'll never penalise a skill error if you've made the right decision. I want you to focus on making the right decision. If you're kicking the ball to the, the right place and it comes off the side of your boot, we will wear that. That's, that's part of the game. But let's try to make the right decision. And once you remove that barrier for them, you can see the fear just drip away. And 
that brings up another thought is that it, it just shows you how much fear is baked into even the most basic of sports like a basketball where, you know, we actually teach kids to kind of fear the game inherently uh, because we focus on missing. Yeah. I, I was actually reading, I think it was in one of Brian McCormick's books. He's, he's uh, some great stuff in the basketball space, but he was talking about that same thing is that what happens when we focus so much on the result is that players become afraid to make mistakes because they're judged on the outcome. And then because of that, they only do things that they're comfortable with doing that they feel like they can kind of control the outcome reliably on. And so it just totally stunts their development because they're not willing to try new things and risk failing because even if they make the right decision, if the outcome's bad, they, they get jumped on for it. Yeah, yeah exactly. So it, if you pull on that thread, like think about the innovation within the game that we're missing out on because we force them down these paths. What we call best practices, which aren't, they're just, it's made up most of the time. But because we think that that's the best way to do it, we actually push them into this yeah, barrel of fear. Um, and even at the highest levels, like there's, there's actually vision of in the first year, Steve Kerr coaching, uh, Steph Curry, where Curry's like in the key, he's drilling between his legs, he's got four defenders on him and the camera is just focused on Steve Kerr and you see him actually put his heads, his hands on his head and, and like he is just mortified because, you know, it's it kind of goes against the structure of what they were hoping to do. And then Steph Curry ends up dribbling out of, four defenders on him and then hitting a fadeaway three-pointer <laughs> right and but what i mean by this is if we didn't let him do that and let him actually innovate on the court and be creative he would be a worse player and he's one that's been lucky to to get away with it but there have been so many other people that could do so much more if we would let them if we just remove that fear from them that's really powerful that's a good story too. I like that. Um, here's my last question for you. I've, I've asked this to every coach that I've interviewed and the responses have been really, really fascinating. If, if you Cody Royal, if you could decide these are the three or four things that every coach, every sport, every level, they need to be educated on these things. What would they be? It's a great question themselves the full gamut of communication i'll say uh human behavior because we pretend that we're experts at it but we show every day that we're really not and oh what am i going to pick as my fourth I would, I would actually say, and I know I'm not actually putting like the game or technical ability or tactical ability or anything. I actually don't think those things are as important as we think. I, I, I would actually love for coaches to be educated on, on the world, like have a worldly view. One of the most impactful stories that I, I heard while writing the book was uh, Jesse Marsh, who's an American soccer coach traveling around the world and realizing that no one cared about major league soccer. It was one of the most impactful things of his career. And he, <laughs> you know, just, just that sense of, you know, what in Laos or Burma or <laughs> Hong Kong or, you know, somewhere in Africa, they don't really care. And it just helps you kind of take a lot of the pressure off. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. Perspective is so important. Would you just tell me the first thing you said was they need to be educated, educated on themselves. Will you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah. This is really at the core of the tough stuff is we 
are socialized to really not pay attention to ourselves and our own emotions and our own sense of self, so our identity. Uh, we're told that, you know, if you're feeling sad, generally the response, particularly for men, is, well, I'll just go to the bar and have a few beers right, and drink away your pain. And we end up quashing ourselves. And this is all proposed to us as being in service of something greater. Like don't, don't project any of your woes onto the world. But what it does is it robs us of that recognition of ourselves and what makes us tick and who we are and uh, all of our trauma and pain kind of goes unrecognized. And so uh, I think that's really detrimental to everyone, not just us as the individual, particularly as coaches, uh, it's detrimental to those that we interact with. So, you know, I, I talked about self-talk earlier. The biggest jump in my coaching has been my ability to recognize and train myself on my own dialogue inside my head and how I speak to myself and showing myself a bit of self-love instead of self-criticism and acceptance for who I am as an individual and my identity and what, what makes me angry, like being okay with what makes me angry and just saying, you know what, you know, uh, this is who I am. And um, that's what I mean by self is that this isn't a necessarily a sports problem. It comes out in sports, but this is a social problem that we just push individuals into yeah, sinking their feelings into the bottom of the barrel or bottom of the, the bar or, you know, um, that then doesn't allow people to bring their best selves and their best skills into an environment like sports because they're then dealing with their own kind of identity issues, which are really at the core of who we are as people. You can't just put that away for two hours while you go and play basketball. It's still there. And so let's recognise that and say, how can we help facilitate the ability to learn about yourself, who you are, show yourself a bit of love. And the people who probably need it the most are coaches. Thanks again to Cody for coming out of the podcast and coaches. If you'd like to connect with Cody, you can follow him on Twitter at Cody Royal or check out his website, codyroyal.com to find his books, podcasts, and other resources. And if you'd like a copy of the notes from today's conversation, you can go to transformsport.org slash podnotes or click the link in the show details to get a free copy of the notes from today's conversation. And if you enjoyed the episode, please take a minute to rate, review, and subscribe to the Coaches Club podcast wherever you listen. And give us a shout out on Twitter at coachesclub underscore. That's C-O-A-C-H-E-S club underscore. Thanks for listening to the Coaches Club podcast powered by Transform Sport, where we believe great coaches transform lives, athletes deserve great coaches, and coaches deserve great training.